Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibri Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Bidroy Kanderia, who's Director of Echocardiographic Laboratories at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Before his current role, he was Chair of the Division of Cardiovascular Disease at Mayo Clinic and a Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And we were put in touch by one of our advisors, who's based in the UK, Akhil Paul of Capera Group. So I'd like to give a shout out to Akhil for connecting us. So Dr. Kanderia, thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure is all mine. So we always start with just getting a bit more about your background beyond what it says on your faculty page. So do you mind telling us a bit about how you um, came up to be a cardiologist, go into medicine? Sure. So uh, all along when I was finishing my medical school in Baroda, India, I wanted to go to the Mayo Clinic and I got an opportunity, but I didn't know that the journey to the Mayo Clinic wasn't like just landing there. So I ended up in New York, started my residency, uh, worked pretty hard, got a fellowship at Mayo Clinic, and I thought I had reached Nirvana. I was going to be at Mayo Clinic, only to realize that Mayo Clinic can't apply for a job. You have to be approached, and you have to be voted upon, and then you get a job or you become a senior associate consultant and a consultant, and I was fairly lucky that I got all the right votes and I did all the right things, so I ended up at Mayo Clinic. The reason I ended up in cardiology was also a mistake. My father had Parkinson's disease, and he had to prematurely retire, so I wanted to be a neurologist to find cures to Parkinson's disease. So I even went for six months to the UK to become a neurologist because they had one of the best neurologists in the world at that time and still today. Only to realize that neurology was the most boring part of medicine that ever existed. And I came across several big names in cardiology at Hammersmith and I got interested in cardiology and then the rest is history. I said, this is what I want to be. I worked towards that and being at Mayo in cardiology was a very coveted position for me. When you became a cardiologist, obviously it's been, you've been in practice for, for now some time. What have been the biggest changes you've seen uh, in the practice of cardiology since you began? What I've seen in the evolution of cardiology is that technology is becoming more and more ubiquitous and I have seen from stethoscope to echoscope, and we are doing some work in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I foresee that before I retire, I'll see assisted artificial intelligence and assisted machine learning uh, do a lot of things that we used to just rely on the skill or the art of a person. And it's evolved from a stethoscope to an echoscope and now you can visualize the heart with a small handheld machine uh, in real time in three dimensions, which wouldn't have been even been possible when I was doing my training in cardiology. It's kind of split. On one side, we have people like Dr. Eric Topol, a fellow cardiologist who talks about AI and ML in, in cardiology specifically and in, in healthcare in general. Um, and on the other side, you have a physician like Dr. Abraham Verghese of Stanford who talks about how technology gets in the way 
between the clinician and patient. Where do you fall in that spectrum? I actually fall in the middle because I don't think AI is replacing, but AI is to assist the physician and is to hone their skills and is to allow them to get quickly to the information that they are looking at. It's not a replacement. And I know Eric fairly well, and he is on one extreme of this, at least when he writes his book and when he lectures. Uh, so yeah, I think it falls in between. And uh, my practice here is that mixture that in the echo lab, when I'm looking at an echocardiogram, I use some of basic elementary AI to help me make that diagnosis. And I don't let the machine make the diagnosis, but I synthesize the patient information and then come up with a diagnosis. So with all these proliferation of technology, like uh, Apple has the electrocardiogram um, reading watch, and there's companies like AliveCore and Echo. I'm curious what you think of this uh, democratization of the ability for patients to collect their own health data. Do you think it's overall a good thing, or do you think it maybe leads to what's called cyberchondria and just having patients get too worried at home and self-diagnose? Well, I would say that it's a good thing because we now talked about cyber in this digital world, everything is cyber. But in reality, at least in my practice, it would be a patient ringing me up or in the old days using a rotary telephone to call you to ask because they were concerned, they were worried. I again think of Apple Watch or a live course ECG as a tool to help the physicians. So there's always the human spectrum is such that there are always the worry warts. And then those are, one, those are ones that even if they are dying, they are not going to say something is wrong with me. So having all of these technology available enables me as a physician to sort out what I need to, to be able to spend time counseling the patient rather than trying to alleviate or figure out where is the stuff and where, what is real and what is uh, a little bit of uh, worry. So one reason we call this podcast Ways Line is we believe a lot in increasing healthcare capacity. One way to do that is to train more healthcare workers, right? Nurses, PAs, physicians. But another way to do that is consumerization and democratization of healthcare so that, as you were saying, someone wearing an Apple Watch may not self-diagnose, but at least can collect data that then a physician halfway around the world can, can help them understand whether they have atrial fibrillation or not. And so it's really encouraging to hear that you as a practicing cardiologist have adopted technology and believe in the power of it to, to kind of augment your practice as opposed to replace it. I totally believe in that. Uh, and it really, I have examples day in and day out where it has augmented plus unlike some others who think that it's a hassle and you get bombarded, et cetera, I have always found it to be very helpful. I mean, there are examples where I have had patients then finally come to an emergency room because they have an Apple Watch, which shows that they are in rapid atrial fibrillation. We've also done some remote echocardiograms. Uh, and particularly in this COVID time, this becomes very important because you don't know if this is uh, just the concern or isolation or whatnot. So being able to tell them that, you know, 
put this on your chest and move it a little bit here and let me look at this can tell me simple things like whether there is fluid around the heart or not. So it's actually been very, very useful. I'm glad you brought that up because it was actually my next question was how has COVID influenced your day-to-day -day work and also the health system in general at Advocate Aurora? Can you mind commenting a bit about that? Sure. So Advocate Aurora is a very large health system, 37 hospitals and whatnot. So when COVID became very apparent that there was going to be potentially a surge and that our hospitals would be filled with patients. We did what everybody else in the country and the world did. We segregated beds that were for COVID specific patients. And then the rest of it, we actually kept them empty unless there were emergencies. Uh, we definitely put every elective procedure that could be done safely uh, on hold just because we didn't know the capacity that this bug would have to cause one who doesn't have the disease to get the disease because they were in a hospital and we were learning a lot and we didn't want hospitals to be overfilled and not be able to accommodate the very sick patients. So the four weeks or six weeks, our numbers were very much down to bare minimum. And that was true across the country. Uh, and now we are in phase three of reactivation. And I can speak for where I practice or the component I practice in my own uh, echo laboratory. We are actually up to 95% of last year's capacity. So we have been able to manage bringing in all the elective patients and bringing them in very safely. Uh, I can also speak to the fact that my team, we divided our echosonographers into two teams, a team that only does COVID patients and another team that does rest of them. And the five sonographers who only do COVID patients and have been doing them for the last six weeks as of today, and I'm touching wood. They are completely asymptomatic. Few of them have had antibody tests done and they're antibody negative. Uh, and obviously the other team have had no contacts whatsoever. So they are obviously doing very well. So COVID has taught us quite a few lessons. Uh, one of the things that we are going to publish uh, it's been published, but not as widely as we wanted to, uh, is that in COVID, the earliest abnormality is right ventricular strain. By the time the right ventricle enlarges, that patient's already on a journey, which is not going to make him or her come back. That by the time you get end-stage disease, your right ventricle's enlarged and there's not much hope left. But if you can pick up right ventricular enlargement prior to this, and right ventricular strain is one way of doing it, you do very well. And we published this and it's gotten a lot of widespread recognition. So that's really interesting. I, I was gonna ask you the next question was how this COVID manifests in the cardiovascular system. And so you've mentioned that right uh, ventricular strain 
and enlargement is, is one of the manifestations that you've recently published on. What are some of the other things that you've observed in cardiovascular patients? So the two things that we have observed and have been published, one is that because it affects the lungs, the lungs are connected to the right ventricle. You should look at the diagram on osmosis on right ventricle. Whoever has drawn it has done a very elegant job. Thank you. Uh, a really elegant job. Actually, I use it to teach my sonographers. So uh, the right side obviously has to get affected because the lungs are under immense distress. And what was published thus far is that the right ventricle enlarges and because a lot of these patients also get microemboli, the right ventricles are even under a bigger strain. Now, by the time the right ventricle enlarges and the pulmonary pressures or the right heart pressures go up, you're kind of reaching a point that you cannot come back to. So we thought, what is an earlier sign? And that's how we looked at right ventricular strain because strain goes up before the ventricle enlarges. The other thing that we have not yet published because that manuscript is in preparation is that this virus also causes inflammation of the heart. And unfortunately, these patients are so sick that we cannot biopsy them because there is inflammation, all the markers of inflammation go up because there is inflammation in the lungs, there is inflammation everywhere. So you can't use that marker to say it is related to the heart, but there is something called as myocardial work index, which is specific to the left heart. And of the 36 patients in whom we could measure that, 32 of them have abnormal myocardial work, which we know in non-COVID patients is very much abnormal when they get myocarditis. So we think the end stage of COVID is the heart. And once the heart starts failing, majority of these patients die which is again the same data from Italy, same data from New York, that these patients require circulatory support to the heart to even type them over their ICU courses. Wow, that's fascinating. And uh, we should definitely be linking to the manuscripts for our audience. Going from the cardiovascular system to the overall healthcare system, what are some of the observations, things you've learned about that the healthcare system could have done better or could do better moving forward? So could have done better is like history. There are a lot of things one could have done better. A lot of speculations that this could have been stopped, but it's history, so there's no point in thinking about it. But what again has been shown on, you know, in large epidemiologic databases now is that simple things that we should have been doing, but we didn't do works. So one of the promises Advocate Aurora made once we opened up to other patients was a safe care promise. Safe care sounds very fancy, but it just reemphasizes simple things. Hand sanitizer or washing the hands. I think you and I and everybody here would have said that we were taught that, that wash your hands when you come inside, 
the house, wash your hands. Before eating, wash your hands. So same thing, wash your hands. Cover your face when you're coughing at somebody or if somebody is coughing at you, you cover your face. In some cultures in Asia, when people did that, when you see them on the planes, you would be joking as to look there from that culture. But that's turned out to be true that, so face mask. My mother always used to tell me, don't touch your face. Now I know why. And she's not even a physician. So things that are again very simple that we should have done before that we are now forced to do and disinfecting which is the new thing that we are doing as a part of our safe care promise. And then in, at least in our, all the hospitals and clinics, we obviously now screen the people before they come in. The social distancing is a new, new thing, but we are learning about it. So some of the changes are new and most of them are things that we should have known about and didn't do. Yeah, keeping it simple and, and you know, kind of the 80-20 rule of what will have yep. the most effect. Um, my last question is, you know, given that our audience is primarily health professionals, students and current health professionals, what advice would you give to a young or budding health professional today? Simple advice. This is still the most noble profession. May not be as lucrative as starting your own company but it's still the most noble profession. And it's at these times when there are epidemics, pandemics, that you realize what value you bring, not only to yourself, the society, but also those who are really sick. And these five sonographers I mentioned, I actually call them the healthcare heroes because they're young girls who wanted to go to the bedside and perform these echocardiograms, they came up with a protocol where instead of a 60 minute study, they got the same information in 35 minutes. So their contact time with the, with the patient was limited from 60 minutes to 35 minutes. And as you know now, contact time is what causes you to get disease, not just casual contact. So, this is still the noble profession and to all the healthcare professionals who your, your audience is, don't give it up. Always pays off. That's great advice. So thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Kandaria. Pleasure is all mine. I'm Shivulani. Thanks for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>